As I mentioned, we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, so if you have your Bibles, you might want to get those out and and have many of the verses up here, but uh, starting in verse 2, I will not have this up here. 1 Corinthians 11. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth on propriety and worship. What's appropriate when we come to worship? He says to the Corinthian believers, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the teachings just as I passed on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays and prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off, of her, and her, or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but a woman is the glory of man. Verse 8, For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord... Woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Okay, you're dismissed. Thank you for coming here today. (laughs) This uh, passage, uh, I knew I'd be coming to it as we worked through 1 Corinthians. And I could have easily skipped over it and gone straight to the Lord's Supper and preached on that. But I thought, ah, I'm going to talk about this. We can't skip over this. But the NIV application commentary, of which I have a set of, very popular. Um, the, the passage is probably the most complex, controversial, and opaque of any text comparable length, of comparable length in the New Testament. That's what the commentary says. It goes on to say, a survey of the history of interpretation of this passage reveals how many different exegetical options there are for a myriad of questions and should inspire a far, a far measure of tentativeness on the part of the interpreter. Okay, so having said that, this is in chapter 11, so, which means bankrupt in some cases, but uh, chapter 11, which means challenging, Some of you will be fascinated as we work through this passage this morning. Others will be frustrated as you hear uh, our interpretation in this church. And yet others may be freed by hearing this passage because after all, it's God's word. God's word frees us. It's not my prayer to change anyone's mind this morning regarding your conviction But it's my prayer that you'll have an understanding and appreciation, perhaps another way of looking at this passage. As the commentary said, there are a myriad of interpretations here. But I want you to know that uh, our denomination in this church bases all of our 
lifestyle issues on God's word. On a very important study of God's word. Not on political correctness, not on a liberal agenda or a conservative agenda for that matter, not on any agenda, but we look at God's word and we um, discern what God wants us to do and how he wants us to live it out as a church and as a denomination. Now many would conclude after reading this passage, especially in verse 2 and 3, that this passage teaches headship theology. Look at verse 3. But I want you to realize, Paul says, that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Headship theology was made popular about 40 years ago by Bill Gothard in his seminars. It goes by the name of complementarianism or patriarchalism, which asserts that it is a man's role to lead and a woman's role to submit to male leadership. After all, the head of, every man, the head of woman is man, Paul says. And head, under this headship theology, recognizes or understands the word head to mean leader, like the head of a company, the head of a corporation, goes on to say in verse 4, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. Again, headship theology teaches that woman, women should have head coverings. Not in a literal sense, but in a figurative sense. Like a male pastor or a male leader, or a husband or teacher that is a spiritual covering over the woman for her protection by God's divine chain of command. So if this is how you believe, then you might be wondering, then why in the world would we in the covenant church, evangelical covenant denomination, why would we have women pastors? Why would we allow Amy, our children's director, to pray up front? Why would we occasionally have women come and preach here or teach in Sunday school classes? And it's a fair question. First, I want to um, unpack the idea of head. What did Paul mean when he used the word head? Or in the Greek, it's kephale. What he meant was a literal head, a head. He would have been referring to, therefore, a literal head covering as he was writing this letter to the church in Corinth. He was first and foremost thinking of something literal. How many women this morning in this sanctuary are wearing head coverings in, in obedience to God's holy word, the truth of God's word? In verse 4, every man who prays or prophesies his head co covered dishonors his head. How many men this morning are not wearing head coverings? Raise your hand. Ah, thanks for obeying, guys. There's a rule of interpretation anytime you study Scripture. And the rule of interpretation is always this. Is this prescriptive or is this command descriptive? Is this prescriptive for all people for all time? Like it is like the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill. That would be prescriptive for all time. 
Or is it descriptive of a certain time, a certain culture? And obviously, this head covering uh, for women is not prescriptive. It's descriptive of the church in Corinth and what was going on there. When it talks about men not having their heads covered, with his head covered reads literally in Greek, having down from the head. So Paul may very well be referring to one's length of hair covering one's head. And he supports this in verses 14 and 15 when he says, Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair... It is a disgrace to him, but, if, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for long hair is given to her as a covering, head covering, long hair. However, in the Greco-Roman world of Corinth, no woman would have gone outside anywhere in public with her long hair uncovered. It would have been unthinkable in that culture. It would have been risque. It would have uh, given sexual and sensual connotations that she didn't want to give. It'd be like walking through the streets of McPherson or in a mall in Wichita in your bikini or me going into McDonald's in my Speedo, if I had a Speedo. And I know you didn't want that thought in your mind this morning. But how inappropriate is that? But that's what it would have been to have a hair uncovered or long flowing hair just not put up or covered. Also, if a man had long hair or a woman had short hair in the Greek culture, they would have been identified as gender um, confused or cross-dressers, for example. Um, And so in verse 6, we read, For if a woman does not cover her head she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but a woman is glory of man. In other words, Paul was saying, just shave your whole head, woman, if you're not going to cover your head. Um, I have, he's using sarcasm here, or he's using... Um, Uh, just a stark picture to present the truth. It's like when Jesus said in Revelation, I'd rather have you hot or cold. If you're lukewarm, I'll spew you out of my mouth. I'd rather have you be completely obedient or not be obedient at all. Take your stand, but not lukewarm. Bottom line, Paul was asserting that he wanted to preserve gender distinctiveness in the Corinthian culture, the sexually confused culture. Believers were not to present themselves in a confusing way or misrepresent Christ by looking provocative by the way they wore their hair, be it male or female. Even in Paul's day, though, other cultures would practice different customs. In our culture, it's not, sinfully, it's not sinful to have long hair if you're a guy. Thank goodness to... Connor or Jordan, our intern, and it's not sinful for a woman to have short hair. It's not sinful if one were to wear a head covering today or if one did not, or a mask or no mask. That's not sinful. But in Jesus' day, or in Paul's day, it would have been very appropriate for Jews to have long hair 
as we see Jesus depicted so often. The Nazarites, during Samson's day in the Old Testament, they were commanded never to cut their hair. And in Paul's day in Corinth, in the Greco-Roman world, the Spartans, those fighting men, it was their custom to wear long hair. So if you're a Spartan, it's okay to have long hair. We understand. Otherwise, not. However, there are inappropriate and misleading ways that we can misrepresent the living God and harm our witness for Christ. For example, if we had worship leaders up front wearing halter tops and miniskirts as they led worship, it would not be, it would not be appropriate. It would be distracting. Or if men were to wear pants halfway down, you know, down their legs um, or sideways hats or whatever, that would be inappropriate too. It would just be kind of distracting and it would give the wrong message. Appropriateness in worship and effectiveness in witness were themes not only here but throughout the book of Corinthians. Um, just prior, last week when we preached on whether you should eat meat or not eat meat, we have freedom to do whatever, Paul said, but if it hinders my witness for Christ, I will never, ever eat meat again when I'm with these people. I give up my freedom in order to win those and not cause them to stumble. In this matter of wearing hats could cause people to stumble or not wearing your hair up and wearing long hair for a woman or long hair for a man would cause others to stumble. It'd be like if Walmart, which they are, going to require masks now, right? If you were as a Christian saying, I'm not going to wear my mask. I'm free in Christ. I'm free as an American. Freedom of speech. I'm not going to wear a mask. And you barge into Walmart. You're the only person walking around in your freedom. Well, that would destroy your witness as God's representative. It's not a sin to wear a mask or not wear a mask, whether in church or in Walmart or anywhere, but it will still harm your witness. Or one other example. Missionaries today practice this all the time. Um, like Hannah Corbis, when she goes to the Middle East to witness, to, to um, reach out to Muslims. This isn't Hannah. Um, didn't want to put their pictures on here, but Hannah would wear a headdress like this as a Christian, as a Christ follower, to win the Muslims. Or one other missionary that we support in India, she does the same thing. It's very appropriate in the culture in order to identify the people so as to win them to Christ. So this explains why Paul encouraged women in Corinth to wear head coverings, quite literally to cover their heads. But did the head coverings also have symbolic meaning? As I mentioned, some have interpreted head to mean authority or leader, a male figure. Others interpret it simply to mean the top of the body. Heads are on top of our bodies, right? Linguist Richard Servan says the top of the body or like a top of a mountain or the head of a wave, top of a wave or top of a tree, it doesn't necessarily mean that the top of the tree is the authoritative part of the tree or the top of the wave is the authoritative or the head of the beer on top of the glass. That's not the authoritative. It has nothing to do with authority. While others, and this is what we believe in the covenant denomination, we understand head to mean source or origin, like the head of a river, the beginning, starting point of a river, or the fountain head 
of a sprinkler or fountainhead. It's where something originates and it leads to life and growth as it flows out. So when Paul spoke of authority, he typically used words like exousia. When he spoke of a ruler or leader, he typically used the word in Greek, archon. He wouldn't often use the word kephale, meaning head. In fact, in the New Testament, it contains scores of references to leaders from all walks of life, religious leaders and community leaders and military leaders and governmental and patriarchal leaders and church leaders, never are any of them really designated as head or head over or seldom. In one of the most extensive Greek-English lexicons that I used throughout Bible school and seminary, in over 2,000 pages from Little and Scott, of the 48 separate English equivalent meanings for kafale or head, not one of them implies leader or authority or ruler or supreme. And this is, this is supported by early church fathers like Cyril of Alexandria or Christentum or Athanasius or Eusebius or Ambrose or St. Basil who all understood that kafale head, means source and not authority according to 1 Corinthians 11.3. Furthermore, the chronological sequence is very important and points to source and not authority. What I mean by this in verse 3, it says the head of every man is Christ. The head or the source of every man is Christ. Jesus created Adam, right? Adam came first, and then the source of the first woman was Adam. From Adam came Eve, the first woman, and then the source or head of Christ was God. In other words, Christ, God in the incarnation sent Jesus to earth in that order. Now my Bible prophet at Wheaton College, Gilbert Bilzekian, said at creation Christ was the giver of life to men as a source of life of Adam. In turn, man gave life to the woman, and she was taken from him. Then God gave life to the son as he came into the world in the incarnation. This is chronological order. If Paul wanted to argue hierarchical, like God is above Jesus, is above man, is above woman, then he would have used a different order. He was, began with God, and then Jesus, and then Adam, and then Eve, man and woman. But this order doesn't convey that in 1 Corinthians 11. So the truth that Paul was seeking to drive home here in the passage can be summed up in verses 10 through 12. In verse 10, he says, It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Some versions in my office wrongly state a woman ought to have a sign or a symbol of authority over her head, meaning an authority figure. But the issue with that is that's not what the Greek says. In fact, Paul never once used the word sign or symbol in this passage. In fact, it's read correctly, a woman ought to have authority over her own head. That's what the Greek says. That's what Paul meant. There's no word for sign. Authority over her own head. In other words, a woman in Corinth was given personal authority and freedom in Christ to obediently wear a head covering, 
to obediently not wear her hair long and, and march out in public. She was given authority to decide. Furthermore, she was given authority for something else in verses 4 through 5. Listen to this. It says, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every woman who prays or prophesies, come again, a woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, women can pray and prophesy? Women were given authority in Christ to pray like Amy did this morning, or to prophesy, which means to preach. This is very overlooked in this passage. You just gloss over it and focused on the head covered or uncovered. But women were praying and prophesying. In the Jewish world, women were never, ever permitted to pray or prophesy before a congregation or in a Jewish synagogue. But in Christ, these women found this newfound freedom and they were beginning to be able to use their gifts, spiritual gifts, to pray and, and to prophesy, to use their gifts fully. It's what we call egalitarianism instead of complementarianism. Now, praying is when we pray to God like Amy did this morning, and prophesying means when we speak on God's, um, speak for God to a people. That's what prophecy means. In many conservative churches today, women are expected to wear hair coverings according to this passage. But at the very same time, these same women can never pray or speak in church from up front, which seems to be a contradiction to me. Incidentally, the gift of prophecy appears before it's one of the fivefold leadership gifts, and it appears before pastor, teacher, and all the others. Evangelist in Ephesians 4, for example, and God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the church. And women could prophesy leadership gift. Verse 10, and it concludes by saying, because of the angels. A woman ought to have authority over her head because of the angels. Angels? What do angels have to do with anything? Well, we all know, know that one day, for all eternity, we will be ruling over the angels as sons and daughters of God. But even before then, we're given the authority to overcome fallen angels. We are in a dress rehearsal for what we will be doing for all eternity. Because of the angels, both men and women have authority over themselves to utilize their gifts, is what Paul was driving at. But then we read in verse 9, Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. And just when we think women are under the authority of male leadership, um, Paul says this in verse 11, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. But everything comes from God. Interdependency is a biblical theme throughout Scripture. In other words, we need each other. Men need women, women need men in the body of Christ, while Christ is our ultimate authority, for everything comes from God. This was God's intention from the very beginning. Yes, it is true 
that Eve came from Adam. Adam was created first and Eve came from Adam. This is true, but then Paul goes on to say in verse 12, but ever since Eve, for as women came from man, so also man is born of woman. There's not a single man sitting here today that didn't come from their mother. That's what Paul's saying. So correct biblical interpretation must understand the bigger picture of God's story rather than take a couple of unclear passages like 1 Corinthians 11 that are debated for centuries and construct a theological worldview based on that. Instead, you, if you want to interpret Scripture correctly, you need to take the very large theme of Scripture, God's story. And God's story is this. In Genesis 1 through 3, we know that God created male and female in his image after his likeness male and female and then God said to Adam and Eve I'm going to give you this creation and you're going to co-reign together over my creation you have that authority and you are to be one as you do this there's going to be an interdependence but then we know in Genesis 2 and 3 that the fall comes right and Adam and Eve they, they uh, eat, of, eat of the tree and they buy into the lie of the serpent and then we know that the consequences of sin began to infect them and all of creation ever since then. And these are the consequences. Hard labor for men, Genesis 3, the ground is cursed because of you. Hard labor for women, then he said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy, and in the pain you'll give birth. A different kind of hard labor. And then this, interestingly, gender wars. And you will desire to control your husband, woman, and he will rule over you. That's a result of the fall. And then finally, death. To dust you shall return. After the fall, though, God put into motion something to reverse that curse and to restore that which was lost in the garden. And it's called the good news. And when women heard the good news, those who were disenfranchised, those who were regarded as nothing in that culture, when they heard the good news, they responded. And so did all the others, the Gentiles and the Samaritans and the lepers and all those who were regarded as nothing, they heard the good news of Christ. And we read in Galatians 3, in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ. That hierarchical system where you're ruling over one another and you're trying to control one another, Jews over Gentiles, masters over slaves, um, men over women, in Christ. No, that is eliminated. The dividing walls of hostility in our salvation is broken down. And then we read in Acts 2, one more passage, and then I'll conclude. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will, there it is again, they'll prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. They'll prophesy. I mean, God's saying it as clear as clear can be. Women will be prophesying. will be preaching. will be teaching. will be speaking forth on behalf of God. So what are the three timeless principles? 
in this difficult passage. First, Christians are not to misrepresent themselves by how they dress, how they wear their hair in Corinth, but how that translates today is like I mentioned, you know, doing inappropriate things in worship and such. Secondly, however, in Christ, there are no gender distinctives as to how one could minister. I mean, senior pastor is not just for men. Preaching is just not for men. Um, women are not excluded from being evangelists and deacons and chair, chairmen or chair people of churches. And then finally, there is a God-given interdependency in the body of Christ. We need each other. Let me conclude by saying this. You may disagree with me. Some of you may be completely frustrated right now. Some of you are fascinated. I should have added a four F, fourth F, but I couldn't think of the word for bored. <laughs> some of you might be bored. But uh, fascinated, but some might be set free too. When women hear this for the first time, they think, I, did, I, didn't, I had no idea I could even pursue ministry or, or I could serve in that way, like on the leadership team. I have no idea. And, and so some might be freed. But whether you're frustrated or whether you're fascinated or freed, it doesn't matter because in the covenant church we can agree to disagree. We have freedom. We can disagree with one another and still remain brothers and sisters, still remain, have respect for one another. And that's awesome. I know many of you will disagree with our interpretation of this because I've talked to you and I don't think I've convinced you or changed your mind this morning. But I just ask that you respect what we believe based on God's word, not by a liberal agenda. And I'll respect you as well. And we can be free to be united and not in uniformity, but unity. And then finally I'll say to you that I will pray for you that in due time you will come to the full knowledge of the truth for those who, no I'm kidding, <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, uh, and we may not know the full knowledge of the truth till we are face to face with Jesus but we can disagree and still love each other and we can still worship here and serve here regardless of whether we believe in headship theology which is complementarianism or whether we believe in um, like a mutual submission type of thing which is egalitarian because I know you and, and I love you and it doesn't matter what you believe uh, just so long as, as you allow that freedom here let's pray and so, Jesus, we thank you for <clears throat> time we can open up your word, even when it's difficult. <clears throat> and we thank you, Lord, that we can continue to have discussions that may uh, sharpen us and may give us greater resolve into our conviction, Lord. But whatever the case, Lord, may you give us humble spirits as we relate to one another. Give us um, the ability to uh, respect one another, even when there are differences, Lord. The world needs to see this more than anything these days. Lord, that we can have mutual respect despite differences. So, Lord, give us that humility, I pray, today. And let us be free to use our gifts here fully at Countryside Covenant, I pray, male or female, in Christ's name. Amen.